Welcome to MVP On The Fly, where we know you're busy but thirsty to learn. This is Dr. Brian Hamm, a boarded internal medicine specialist, and I'm here to bring you clinically relevant information that you can use in clinical practice. Welcome back to the show, everybody. I appreciate you guys tuning back in today. I have Dr. Rob Swinger on the phone with us. He is a boarded veterinary ophthalmologist. Dr. Swinger and I graduated from the University of Illinois together in 2003, and not only were we classmates, but we were also roommates. So I'm sure Rob has plenty he could tell you about me, uh, but that is for another day. He did a rotating small animal internship at the Veterinary Specialist of South Florida, and he went on to do an ophthalmology internship and a residency with Animal Eye Specialty Clinics. Dr. Swinger is going to talk to us about glaucoma today. Dr. Swinger, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. I'm glad to get a chance to participate. Like you said, I'm driving. I hope between no air conditioning and the cars of the sound, everything goes well. Uh, it'll go just fine. So where should we begin when we're talking about glaucoma and the eye? I think always reviewing a little bit of background, just so we're all on the same page about the parts of the eye we're talking about. Where do you think we should start? I think the key to, to thinking about it, right, is just understanding what the disease process is. And that, you know, glaucoma is a kind of a group of a lot of different disease processes, but the one thing that is common between them all is that to truly have glaucoma, you have to have a pressure inside the eye that is detrimental to the health of the retina and the ganglion cells and the, and the optic nerve. And so, so it can fall into a lot of different things. It could be primary glaucoma case. It could be a dog that gets hit in the eye that has hyphema. Whatever could raise the pressure high enough to cause damage, at least at that moment in time, is going to be considered glaucoma. The other thing that I would remind folks is that glaucoma is not an issue where the eye makes too much fluid, especially in the primary glaucoma cases. It's always a drainage problem, right? So, you know, just for hypothetical numbers, if, if the eye was to make an eighth of a teaspoon of fluid every day, and that's made by the ciliary body, right? And that fluid is made there, it creeps out through the pupil and then goes through the natural drain in the front part of the eye. If that drainage is not functioning the way it needs to, then it's going to back up and that's where we get pressure. So it's like putting food in your sink and expecting it to drain. What I don't want people to think about is that the eye is making too much fluid because that's, that's certainly not the case. Right. And the fluid that you're referring to is the aqueous humor, correct? Correct. Correct. So the epithelium of the ciliary body passively makes aqueous humor and aqueous humor is the watery fluid in the front section of the eye that basically is there for nourishment for the lens and the cornea and everything basically from the lens forward. Awesome. And, I, and my understanding is that fluid actually turns over in the eye normally pretty quickly. Is that right? It does very fast. And so, you know, you'll, we'll turn over fluids within our eye probably seven or eight times in a given day. And so let's say you had trauma, for instance, and you had hyphema. You know, if you have blood in the anterior chamber, it's pretty common for that blood to be resorbed or flushed out within one or two days. If that blood happens to get into the back of the eye, that fluid is called the vitreous gel, and it will get entrapped there. There's n we don't have the turnaround for that. The, the vitreous is more like the shocks in your car. It's there to just keep everything held together, and that may take weeks and weeks and weeks to resolve. So there's two definitely different compartments that can cause us some issues inside the globe. Awesome. When we're talking about the fluid and you're talking about the production and the drainage, and obviously if the fluid 
volume increases inside the eye, then we're going to be talking about the intraocular pressures. And there are some variations to those pressures normally throughout the day or with age associated with different disease processes like dehydration or hypovolemic shock. So really quickly, just normal variations are what? As you get older, they decrease. Different times of the day, they go up, they go down. Just normal variations, right? Yeah, normal variations. You know, it's normal even for a general pet to vary two to three to four points in a given day. Pressures tend to be higher in the morning, and that's our theory is that at night they've been dilated all night long, so the drainage angle has been partially closed. Older dogs, you know, they, they, they're older. They don't do anything like they did when they were two, and so they certainly don't make as much fluid. So it's not uncommon for a older Labrador to have pressures of six or a young Boston Terrier to have pressures of 24, and neither one of those are, are abnormal given their signalment. The thing I would say is when we start talking about numbers, you know, historically, the gold standard tonometer was the tonopin, and most studies have been done on the tonopin, and the range is somewhere between 12 to 22, and that really does fall cats and dogs. Cats might be just a little bit higher, but there's new tonometry technology out today, and that is the rebound tonometer. And, you know, what we're finding with the rebound tonometer is that it's probably a little more accurate. We're finding higher ranges. And so with a rebound tonometer, the normal may be somewhere closer to 18 to 28. And so the important thing is no matter what tonometer you're using in your practice, at this point in the game, since there are multiple ones and different ones have different ranges, it's important that you document which tonometer device you're using. That's really important uh, information because I would say there's a lot of people that may not know that fact. So everybody listening, you're going to want to make sure that you check which device you guys have in your hospital, the Tono Pen versus the Tono Vet, and then making sure that you have the appropriate range of normals associated with those. Um, and, and Dr. Swinger was kind enough to just give those to us. So if you need to go back, you can grab those off this podcast. One thing that I think of when we were doing pressures in dog's eyes that I always made sure my staff was aware of was as you're restraining the animal, you can actually cause a temporary increase in intraocular pressures by occlusion of the jugular vein if you are restraining them in a way that puts pressure on that. Isn't that correct? It is. It is. I mean, that, that, you know, I see three or four patients a year. They're normally angry Shih Tzus. They come in for glaucoma, right? And it's just glaucoma induced by restraint. So it's important that you have these these animals as calm as, as you possibly can. You know, if you're going to do serial IOP checks, you want to try and do them at the same time. You want to have them in the same position. Um, you can certainly, I mean, an angry dog that's being wrestled is going to have a higher pressure. So take some time, try and calm them down and do the best you can. That's awesome. That's good advice. Let's talk about some of the clinical signs, because I know you can have acute glaucoma, and then you can have more of a chronic version. So let's talk about the signs you might see with those different conditions and presentations and uh, what might tip us off to it being glaucoma. Yeah. So, you know, if you get a, an acute glaucoma, typically strikes within a couple of hours, right? So the, the type of glaucoma that our dog patients get compared to humans is their angle is open, but their, their trabecular meshwork, their drain is what actually closes. And so unlike a person, they, you know, humans don't wake up and have pressures of 80 and blind. Typically, we normally have a direct relationship as our drainage angle slowly closes over the years, our pressure goes up. And so these dogs, it's going to be sudden and acute, typically in, a, in, a, in an acute glaucoma case. And they're going to be painful. They're going to have a red 
you know, the episcleral vessels are going to be engorged and red. The cornea is going to take on edema, so become very cloudy. They're painful. A lot of them are lethargic. We know we believe that pressures higher than 35 to 40, they probably start experiencing migraine type headaches. And those are the cases that need to be dealt with on an emergent basis. Those are a little bit different than the glaucoma patient that walks in that's got a bupthalmic eye, right? If the eye is already stretched and enlarged, those patients don't seem, the eye becomes almost like it's more comfortable. Those cases don't need to be aggressively treated because they're probably already blind. So, you know, we start thinking more along those as pain management and just long-term, what our long-term plan is versus the quick emergent ER case that presents with an acute glaucoma. Right, because the, the ultimate goal with glaucoma, if you can catch it early, is that you can maintain vision and re, or restore vision if it's been lost, if you catch it early and get the pressures down quickly. But in those chronic cases, say over a few days, if the pressures have, have remained high, then the likelihood of returning vision to that eye falls significantly. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, if the dog comes in blind, don't count it out, right? I always try and give them a two-week chance to regain vision. There are some dogs that can have a pressure in the 80s for two or three days and the minute we get their pressure under control they're visual and there are some dogs that can take i had one cocker spaniel that took 13 days to regain sight and i've also had dogs that spike for 30 minutes and that's it game over so every dog's a little different every breed you know they all respond a little differently but always give them a chance don't rush them into a permanent removal of an eye or something without trying to get their pressure under control and seeing what happens Okay, great. And then there's one change that you would see as the ophthalmologist in the back of the eye that's considered maybe the hallmark of glaucoma, and that would be the cupping of the optic disc, correct? Yeah. So if you think, I mean, the eye, everyone gets a little wishy-washy about the eye and feels that it's a pretty fragile organ, but the reality of it is it's pretty darn tough. The, the cornea and the sclera, I mean, the connective tissue that's there, it takes a lot to damage that. But the optic nerve is the sweet spot. So that is the very soft area in the back that any pressure that goes up is going to damage that spot and you'll, it'll push it out like a plug. And so that's really what you're monitoring. And you know, sometimes we suspect glaucoma, but we can't document a high pressure. And if we look in the back of the eye, we find that the answer's been made. That's awesome. Okay, good, good information. Let's jump on and just talk really quickly about some more diagnostic tools. We already talked about tonometry, so we, we have that. Uh, the one thing with when you're doing tonometry is you should be doing multiple measurements and trying to make sure you're getting a high percentage of accuracy on your device, averaging those three or more measurements. But there's also gonioscopy and there's also ophthalmoscopy. Can you just touch on those really quickly before we, we move on? Yeah, so... Ophthalmoscopy would be looking at the fundus and looking at the optic nerve. But gonioscopy is actually looking at the drainage angle. So, you know, anyone that's done an eye exam probably can't say that they looked at the drainage angle because it's so far peripheral and it's between the iris and the cornea and you just really can't see down in there. So with a gonial lens, it will either has a mirror or it's just a, the way that it's angled will actually allow us to look down at that directly and we can appreciate whether it's open or closed. And if it starts, it doesn't necessarily give us true insight of what's going to happen with that globe, but it certainly gives us a, an idea of what to expect. That's awesome. All right. So all good information so far. Now we want to go into types of glaucoma. You've kind of touched on some of those, the primary versus secondary, a little bit more into that, maybe some breed related stuff. And then after that, we can move on to treatment. So 
kind of diagnosis, how would we try to decide if it was primary or secondary or, or push it into one of these categories? You know, how would you guide us? The one thing I would say, primary glaucoma, while it can happen in any breed, there are certain breeds that it tends to strike more, right? So Cocker Spaniels, Basset Hounds, Shiba Inus, I mean, the, the list could go on and on, Huskies. But these dogs that develop glaucoma typically are younger animals. They're typically between the ages of three and five. They normally are healthy without any other problems. And the general presentation is they were fine yesterday and today they have glaucoma. You know, it normally strikes very fast. If that is the case, these cases of primary glaucoma, you know, we're going to get them under control, but it is always a bilateral disease. And so we can't put our guard down. We've got to start preparing for the other eye. The average dog without therapy in a primary glaucoma case is going to start showing signs of glaucoma within two or three months. With prophylactic therapy, the average is a one or two years. With secondary glaucoma, these patients are normally sick with something else and it's truly secondary to the inflammation from the other disease. So, you know, it's normally bilateral problems, right? That they're normally having issues in both eyes at the same time. That would be very rare in a primary case. They normally have inflammation. And again, there's normally something that you can find on systemic blood work or something that's going to suggest secondary. Now, there are cases where we really do have a hard time differentiating between the two. If you're not sure, assume that it's primary. That way you're protecting the other eye. Because you're never going to hurt by medicating the other eye until they can get in never. to see you. Absolutely. Maybe you removed an eye or you see a case that had an eye removed because it had glaucoma and you never knew if it was primary or secondary. Just assume primary. The only thing you're wasting is time and money by putting a glaucoma medicine in the other eye for the rest of the dog's life. And if it never develops glaucoma, then wonderful. Right. It's great advice. All right. Let's, uh, we have about five minutes left. So let's jump into the treatment because I think that's where a lot of people are going to want information. You know, like what drugs would you want us to have on hand for that emergency glaucoma? Give us some guidance on what drugs we should be keeping in the hospitals, how we should be using them until we can get them over to you. Absolutely. In the primary glaucoma case that comes in, the Bassa Hound, that was normal yesterday that came in today with pressure of 80 in one eye. Our ER drug of choice is going to be latanoprost or Zalatan. And that particular drug will work, you know, one or two drops within an hour. It can take a pressure from 80 down to 20. And the way that it works is it is a prostaglandin analog. And so it, it actually almost mimics a little bit of uveitis. And it does a lot of the same things that uveitis patients would do, right? It makes the eye a little red. It makes the pupil small. The pressures go down. The great drug creates a meiotic pupil. The problem with that particular drug is that if you were to use that in a secondary glaucoma patient that already has uveitis, you may actually make things worse. Okay. So it's not going to be your first drug of choice in secondary glaucomas, but certainly in your primary cases. Now, the drug you could use across species and across any type of glaucoma would be your carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. So drugs like Trusopt or Azopt, which is dorzolamide or brinzolamide, those drugs actually act directly on the ciliary body to force them to, to produce less fluid. Okay. And when we're using them maximally, you can probably reduce fluid by oh, 40 to 60%. The problem with those drugs is that they're they're great drugs. Again, never going to go wrong. Use them across any patient, but they take maybe four hours to work, right? So don't, you know, if you put those in, don't expect that you're going to get the results that you're looking for 
in a matter of minutes, I mean, it's going to take just a little bit of time to bring it down. Normally, in my primary patient, I will treat with both of them. Normally, bimodal therapy, just like pain management or whatever, typically works better than one or the other. So we'll normally get them both on board and get that pressure down. We will never let a primary glaucoma patient leave the hospital without a normal pressure one way or the other. With the secondary ones, we normally get all these medicines on board, treat the underlying issue, right? If they need doxy for their ehrlichia or if they need chemo for their lymphoma, treat the underlying issue and the glaucoma will, will respond as well. Awesome. Good information. All right. We have just a minute or two left. So there were just some like pearls of wisdom that I always like to throw into these. So one of them would be, you know, from my understanding, dogs or cats that are diagnosed with glaucoma are typically better to be wearing a harness over a collar. That way we're not putting that pressure when we're walking them on, on their necks. We should uh, be checking the pressures in every red eye that has an intact cornea or sclera. So I think that's important that we're checking those pressures regularly so we can catch that glaucoma before the dog walks out the door. Early detection in the first 24 to say 72 hours is most important. Again, back to trying to preserve that vision if we can, because that's our, our goal. Humans, again, have a different form of glaucoma. So they may come in with a different expectation or a different outcome or a different plan in their head of how it's going to be treated just because they have their own history to draw on, but not necessarily understanding that it's not the same as animals. And then again, primary glaucoma is bilateral disease. So as Dr. Swinger has mentioned, treating that other eye early on can be the difference between saving that eye and the owners going home and the eye acting up and them not getting back in the, into the hospital in a timely manner to save the eye. Absolutely. You know, and it's probably a, it's a whole conversation for another day, but, you know, medical therapy will eventually fail, but there are surgical options too. And so I always remind folks now that there's enough ophthalmologists out and about if a client wants to continue on as we start to fail with medical therapy, you know, shunts and lasers and, you know, we can buy these dogs quite a few good years with surgical intervention too. That's awesome. Well, Dr. Swinger, I appreciate your time today. I look back on our years of veterinary school and sometimes wonder how either of us made it through vet school, let alone went on to become boarded. So congratulations to you and all of your success. We'll have you back on here shortly to go over some other eye related diseases, but I do appreciate your time today. No problem, Brian. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good one. Take care.